Now, if you like, I'd, uh, you might want to take your Bibles and open to Revelation. And sometimes they say that if you want to find a book of the Bible and you don't know where it is, just start at the front and thumb your way through. This time, start in the back because it's the last book that's in the Bible. Wonderful book. If you were to come over to our home and you were to go to the rec room, on the table you would see a number of pictures. We have pictures of family. We have pictures that are taken over the year. There's kids' birthday parties and there's soccer games and there's holiday events and special celebrations and accomplishments. And then there's a lot of random pictures, all that are going to eventually go into a scrapbook. Now, maybe you scrapbook. Maybe you have those kind of pictures that you have on a disc or that you have stacked in boxes uh, uh, that, that become or already are your family scrapbook. And you look through those and you, 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 your, your, your feelings come into play and, and memories take place and you have experiences that are associated with some of the pictures that you have of your past or your family's past. Maybe you're even thinking of some of those pictures right now. Now you know something? Every churchgoer has a scrapbook of Jesus Christ. We have those pictures of Jesus in our minds. Maybe they're from uh, Sunday school, or maybe they're from movies, or maybe they're, they're, they're books that we've read, or maybe they're actual pictures that are hanging on our walls. You know, Jesus holding the little children. Jesus in the manger surrounded by farm animals. Uh, Jesus being held by his mother. Maybe there's a picture of Jesus overthrowing money changers in the temple. And then there's always that picture that John Otley calls Jesus' senior portrait. You know, it's the one that's found in some uh, rural church Sunday school class where there's a, a portrait of Jesus with this white Anglo-Saxon Jesus with blue or brown eyes and his hair perfectly in place, looking up with the light shining down on him. They all convey something. Even Jesus on the cross. But you know what? These pictures probably don't look exactly the way that Jesus looked then. And they surely don't look like Jesus looks now. Think about this. If Jesus Christ came into our sanctuary right now, what would he look like? Well, God's given us a modern-day picture of Jesus that belongs right on the title page of our scrapbooks of him. And that modern-day picture is found in the last book of the Bible. It's found in the book of Revelation. You know, the first four words of the book are the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, think about that book. What do people most often talk about when it comes to Revelation? They want to know, how's it going to end? They want to know, am I going to be left behind? I read my first book on Revelation when I was in college, and I don't even believe that I knew the Lord back then. Uh, It talked about the armies of China uh, coming over the Himalayan mountains and uh, on, on elephants, and then they were going to fight the ten nation confederacy uh, of Europe, and Everyone will wear a mark on their body somewhere so that they'll be able to buy food, you know. And remember thinking, I wonder if credit cards are the first step to this, this mark of the beast that they called it. And some amazing predictions were made. Perhaps the most amazing prediction that was in that book, of course it said that we don't know the day or the hour 
But the end will take place within the generation that exists when Israel becomes a nation. And it's quick to point out that a generation lasts 40 years. And that Israel became a nation in 1948. So here am I, here I am in 1976 reading this book, doing the math, thinking I have until at least at the very latest December 31st, 1988 to get my act together because the Lord was going to come back at least by then. I don't think it happened. And to be fair, even though the prediction in this book weren't really that accurate, God used that in my life to make me think about the Lord. And through that and some other circumstances, uh, shortly after that, I became a Christian. But I think that the problem with discussing all the symbolism that's in the book of Revelation and the fascination that often goes along with it is that we miss what the book is all about. But we can spend more time talking about the Antichrist than we do about Jesus Christ. And the theme of this book, and we're going to be looking at the first chapter, is this. It says, be warned, be aware, and be encouraged because Jesus is going to win. He is going to win. His team will win and we, the church, will share in his glory. And so the book of Revelation was written to comfort the church, to comfort his army in the midst of of battle. And there was persecution going on when this book was written around 90, 95 AD. It was going on right there to the churches he was directly addressing in what is now modern day Turkey. The uh, emperor uh, Domitian had become the ruler of Rome and he was not in favor of these Christians And they were being persecuted. You know, John, the apostle, uh, had been banished to a rock island in the Mediterranean called Patmos. And property of these Christians were being plundered. They are being thrown into jail. They are being blackballed from their jobs. They were encouraged to worship the emperor. And false teachers were running everywhere. And they were even being executed for their faith by being thrown to wild beasts or having their heads chopped off. These Christians need an encouragement. So it's a very timely message for these guys. But it's also a timely message for us today. You know something that I find interesting? We are challenged to live sacrificially. In the comfortable culture that we live in, we are challenged to make the choice to live a sacrificial lifestyle. But you know, in many parts of the world today and 2,000 years ago, Christians don't have a choice. They know that living for Christ requires living sacrificially. Did you know that most missions organizations today tell us that there are more Christians being put in jail and killed for their faith than in any other time in world history? Maybe our day will come soon. Who knows? So here's what we want to do today. I want to challenge you to remake your scrapbook. Because we're going to take a good look at this revelation of Jesus Christ. And my hope is that our picture book of Jesus that we now hold dear will be challenged and changed 
forever. That's a big passage. It's the whole first chapter of the book of Revelation. So rather than just read the whole chapter, I want to encourage you to pull out your Bibles or pull up your Bibles or pull one out of the pew and turn to Revelation chapter 1, and I'm going to sort of be reading as we go along. And there's three things that we want to note in this chapter. The first one is that this book, Revelation, is written to bless his church. The second one is this. Jesus is coming back and we're going to share in his victory. And the third is that Jesus today and tomorrow and for eternity isn't like we often picture him to be. Revelation chapter 1, it says this. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place, he made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Then he says, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. What a great exhortation to us. What a reminder. Blessed, happy, full are the ones who take his word to heart and keep his word close to him. Isn't it easy to forget that this is the word of God? The word of God. He condescended to speak to us in a language that we could reasonably understand. It's different from any other piece of literature. I remember when I was in college, I took a, a class on Shakespeare, and I, I aced the class. And the reason that I aced the class is because I had learned Bible study techniques. What is the passage saying? What does it mean? How can you apply it? And you know what I did? I applied it to Shakespeare. To be or not to be. What is that saying? What does that mean? How can we apply it? I wrote a little paragraph on it, turned it in, and I got an A. But even the greatest literature in the world is nowhere near in the same category as the Word of God. The Word of God is living, and it is active, and it is God-breathed. It is true. It is powerful. It is able. It is eternal. And we got to be in the Word. we got to be in the Word. And I often hear people saying, ah, I don't know where to start. I don't really understand it. Well, welcome to the club. I don't know anybody who understands the word in its entirety. It's God-breathed. But that's no excuse. I don't really understand what it means. We don't fully understand, or most of us don't fully understand how a plane operates, but we still get on the plane to fly across the ocean. And many of us don't understand how, how you could take a, a cell phone and somehow talk to someone in another location. We don't fully understand how that works, but that doesn't keep us from uh, texting whenever we want to. Start where you do understand the Word of God and build upon that. Start in John's Gospel and read a chapter a day. Or just read the headings that are in most Bibles a day. But we start somewhere. And here's the idea. I mean, look at the, the context of this passage. 
There's persecution, there's trials, and there's hard stuff. And yet God is telling us that we are blessed even in the midst of that. We are blessed as we hold on to the word of God. We're blessed when we let that word run through our veins. We've got to be people of the word. And you know the main reason why we are encouraged to pursue the word of God and the main reason why we are blessed by the word of God? It's because it is the revelation of Jesus Christ. This revelation is written to bless us. That's the first thing. Second thing is this. Jesus is coming back and we are on his team. Look at verse 4. It says, John to the seven churches in the province of Asia. And the reason for seven is there were actually seven churches in central Turkey. But seven represents the number of fullness or the number of holiness. So that means this book is also written to the church worldwide throughout the ages. To the seven churches in the province of Asia. Grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits before his throne. And from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. Then he gives us a doxology. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, and has made us to be a kingdom and priest to serve his God and Father. To him be the glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Look, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him. Even those who pierced him, and all the peoples of earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. Or it is going to happen. It's if John is saying, let me encourage you by way of reminder about what this book is all about. Jesus Christ, who is number one. First, the prototype, the preeminent one, God in the flesh has freed us from our sins by his blood. We're freed from our sins. Do you know that our sin only has the power over us that we allow it to have? If we're looking on the computer and our mind starts wandering and we're tempted, we only we have the freedom from that temptation because no temptation has overtaken us that is not common to man, and we only give in to that temptation and allow our, that sin to have the power that we give it because Jesus has freed us from the power and the penalty of sin. Imagine that you were uh, a slave back in the the heat of the African slave trade. And there's nothing really particularly special about you. You don't have, any, have a strong back or any special ability that makes you necessarily a very useful slave. But you go up on that uh, slave trader's block and the bidding starts and it ends when a wealthy man buys you at great price. And then to your joyous amazement or bewilderment, he sets you free. He removes the chains and you're free. But why? Why would he do that? Why would he set you free? So maybe you go to him and you want to find out. You see, Jesus bought us with his blood on the cross and he sets us free from the power 
of sin. But here's where we miss it. He didn't set us free so that we could go our own way and do whatever we want. He set us free so that we could follow him with joy. That's why he set us free, so that we could follow him. Why? Because of who he is. Because he is the faithful witness. He is the firstborn from the dead. He is the ruler of the kings of the earth who has made us and just happens to love his children beyond what we could ask or think. You know, I think we often underestimate this thing called church. We often forget that we, as a church, really are part of something that's so much bigger than ourselves. We really are part of a kingdom where Jesus Christ is king, where Jesus Christ is Lord. So what this section is telling us is that Jesus says, whatever it is that you're going through, it's worth it. And it's worth it because one day, he says, I will come back and you will see that it is worth it. And the fact of the matter is, either he is going to come back and we will be with him, or we will pass into his presence and be with him. Either way we win. Either way the church wins because he wins. Jesus is coming back and he will win. And we, by being on his team, will share in that victory that's in a way that we can't even fully comprehend. Now, he wins. Now, let's think about this revelation of Jesus. And I want you to, if you would, pull out this the scrapbook of Jesus that you hold in your mind. Pull that out and hold it up in light of this passage. And I'm looking at verse 10. Fascinating. On the Lord's day, I, that's John, was in the Spirit, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. That's the Apostle John who's talking now. And, and he's the guy that spent time with Jesus. Imagine the scrapbook that John the Apostle has of Jesus Christ. I mean, they walked together, they talked together, they reclined together. He was with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration when, when the Lord pulled a little bit of the glory of Jesus back in brilliance. And John is referred to the one that Jesus loved. And he knew Jesus quite well, but I doubt he had seen Jesus in any way close to what he's about to see. Look at verse 12. He says, I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me, and when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and among the lampstands was someone like a son of man. This is Jesus Christ. This is as he is today. This is the one that we're called to father. Look at what it says. He is dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet. A royal robe. A robe denoting preeminence and righteousness and honor. 
And on that robe, he wore a golden sash, which is like the breastplate of the high priest. And the names of the people of God are written on that breastplate. And the, as a priest, he is ready to intercede and to claim all of those who are redeemed through his sacrifice. And then it says his head and his hairs were like wool or snow. And, and when we think of, of, of a white hair and we think about us in our mortal bodies, we think as we get, we get older and we think of decay, but that's not what this is talking about at all. This, this, this hair of wool, white as snow, represents dazzling purity and holiness. He's the ancient of days. It's a picture of the crown of glory. And then it goes on to say that his eyes were like blazing fire. They were able to penetrate and to pierce deeply into heart, the hearts of everything, including the hearts and minds of men. Those eyes able to strike fear in his enemies. Those eyes that can see all nothing over all of time is hidden from his sight. Then it says his feet were like fine burning brass, meaning they were strong and they were well planted and they were steadfast and he is immovable. And his voice was like the sound of of rushing waters, of, of many rivers crashing together, flooded. He can and he will make his words heard by those who are far and by those who are near. His voice was a sound of rushing waters and in his right hand he had the seven stars. And the seven stars represent leaders of the church, ministers and elders that we're voting for, for the, of the church, preserved and secure. And protected by his right hand. And then it goes on to say out of his mouth came a two-edged sword. That sword, the word of God, which both wounds and heals. And then his face was like a sun shining. Its strength too bright and too dazzling for mortal eyes even to behold. This is Jesus Christ in glory. This is Jesus, the second person of the Trinity who has lived from eternity past to eternity future. And for 33 years of eternity, he became man. And so the majority of the pictures that we have in our scrapbook of Jesus represent just those 33 years when he walked on earth, a blip in the timeline of eternity. Not that they're not very, very important, but that's not how he looks now. Have you ever been to a wedding and the bride comes in and she's veiled? And you, you know it's the bride and you can tell that she's very, very, or the groom can tell us to, that she's very, very attractive. But you can't really fully see her in all her radiance because the veil is pulled over her. And then as she gets to the front and perhaps her father gives her away, And they pull back the veil and her loving future husband can see her in the wonderment of her full radiance. She's there. What you see is what you get. 
veiled in flesh the Godhead see, held incarnate deity, pleased this man with men to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. This is Jesus Christ. He wore a veil when he walked on the earth. This is Jesus Christ with the veil removed. This is the one that's seated at the right hand of God. This is the powerful one who is interceding for us and will one day come back in full power and might. And those words, full power and might, don't even describe what it's really going to be like when the Son of God, the warrior king, comes back to earth. There's one one final thing that we don't want to miss. Look down at verse 17 and think about this. If Jesus came into church today, what would you do? Would you get up and hug him? Would you run away from him? Are you really not sure what you would do? I think I know what we would do. It's the same response that John had in verse 17 when he says, When I saw him, remember, he heard a voice and he turned and this is who he saw. And the response was, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Picture that scene. John gets a glimpse of Jesus Christ, and as a result, he falls and is lying motionless at the feet of Jesus. And what did Jesus do? He did what he had done so many times when he walked on this earth. The verse continues. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead and behold, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. Wow. The one who was wounded for our transgressions, now back in his glory, reached out to a motionless John. And I like to think, though I can't prove it, placed his nail-scarred hand of power upon him and said, do not be afraid. He said, I got this. I got this in a way that nobody else can say that I got this. My hand is on your life, and I have got you. And I want you to know that my plan that has been in place from eternity past is happening now and will happen and it has never not happened and we are going to win. What a picture of the glory and the grace of Jesus Christ. And every child of God, no matter what it is we're going through, no matter how messed up we can often get, We should live with the understanding that regardless of how we're feeling or what we're going through, that as a child of God, the hand of Jesus and his full brilliance is on us. This is the one that we love. This is the one that we serve. Think about this picture of Jesus. Let me encourage you to put it on the very, very front 
of your scrapbook of him. Because this is Jesus Christ. And the question is, you know, why don't we think of him like this more often? I don't always think of him like this. You know, why don't we? I think it's because the enemy and the world system and, and, and the flesh and the choices and all the things that we, that we go through in our normal life all work together. There's a power behind it that makes us to, or works to get us to think less of who Jesus is. It's like a vaccination. You know, when, when, when you get, my understanding is when, you, uh, when you're vaccinated, they give you a little bit of the disease so that your bodies will fight it so that you won't get the rest of the disease. And sometimes I think the enemy using the world that we live in would like to vaccinate us with just a little of Jesus. To get us satisfied with with a little Jesus. To, to, to get people to think, you know, that Jesus, boy, he was, a, he was a good guy. That Jesus, he's a viable option to a happy and meaningful life. Let's not be vaccinated with, with just a little Jesus. Because you see, before eternity passed, he is the fullest expression of majesty and power. And through him all things are made. And through this Jesus all things are held together. And at one point he laid aside his royalty. He became veiled to become man in humility, yet lived perfectly, died on the cross, rose, ascended. It is now sitting at the right hand of God, the Father, interceding for us in glory, even as we speak right now. And even as we sit here right now, the day will come when he rises from his seat and he will appear to every eye in his full glory, unveiled as commander in chief of the armies of the living God, as the victorious reigning king in dazzling brilliance, overwhelming his and our men enemies, including death. All in the twinkling of an eye. This is Jesus Christ. This is the same one who told his disciples, Come, follow me. Let me encourage you to have wonder this morning. This is Jesus Christ. Be amazed because this is Jesus Christ. Be loved by this Jesus Christ who has freed you to follow him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, thank you uh, uh, for making Jesus as he is. Uh, And we do tend to underestimate him. Lord, give us the courage and the strength to follow him in such a way that we would be so enamored in in, in him that we would be so satisfied in him. Lord, thank you that his hand is on our shoulder. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.